Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Over the last few days, again, there has been revived talk of a new political party. Apparently when Vince Cable rather unfortunately missed a key Commons Brexit vote, he was at a meeting talking about this very topic. Others uh, raise it on a regular basis. I'm quite sceptical in many respects. It seems to me that it's largely driven by a commentariat and a group of people whose ideas have been at the centre of power for a very long time and now they suddenly find themselves unrepresented in power and by either of the leaderships of the main parties and instead of trying to assert and win uh, within their parties they um, opt for the in some ways easier course of just saying oh well let's set up a new one and there is a lot of imprecise talk about it on what it stands for a kind of economic liberalism social liberalism pro-europeanism that raises about twenty-five thousand questions now the reason i uh talk about this is because I'm going to play you a discussion from the politics festival that Ian Birrell, my friend and journalist, it sounds as if it's a sort of contradiction in terms, being a friend and journalist. But um, anyway, he and I, as you know, or some of you might have known, organised the annual politics festival at King's Place. And one of the best events, I think, well, to our surprise to some extent, because you spent a lot of time booking people like John Major, who came along, and uh, other big names, cabinet ministers and kind of shadow foreign secretary came along, all the rest of it. It takes a long time. But the discussion we had about whether a new party should be formed, could be formed, uh, was really interesting. And it was a panel of great uh, columnists uh, reflecting on that. So I'm going to play that because it's become, if anything, more typical since we recorded the discussion a couple of weeks ago. There is a space for it in the sense that the major parties, frankly, have been dysfunctional for decades. Uh, With Labour, I think it is much more the union link than the rise of Jeremy Corbyn or, you know, Corbyn's foreign policy or whatever, which exercises so many. That is the fundamental problem fundamental problem for the unions and the Labour Party in many ways. Um, A party that seeks to govern should not be in the control of a union, and a union that seeks to represent its members should not be identified so closely with one party. And I think that has been at the well, part of the dysfunctionality of Labour for decades. Um, The Tory party's obsession with Europe and the extraordinary impact of Thatcherism on its soul has become a problem too. So it is worth exploring, but I I was on this panel and did it as a sort of sceptical voice. Uh, Ian Birrell, who chaired it, calls me an old grumpy sod at one point. The others are more up for it on, on the panel. Anyway, before I give you a sort of guide as to who was speaking and and why I think it really is worth listening to. I do have to mention that I'm live at the Edinburgh Festival. 
starting very shortly at the Symposium Hall in the Amphitheatre, rather grandly titled. Uh, that's Rock and Roll Politics, the live show, where, of course, uh, it's much more vibrant in the sense that we can interact with each other and explore things. I'm going to explore what would you do if you were Theresa May? What would you do if you were Ruth Davidson? What would you do if you were Nicola Sturgeon? What would you do if you were Jeremy Corbyn? That's why it's possible to do a different show every day, really, because in getting into the minds of these people, we can choose different people each day to explore at this seismic moment in British politics. Anyway, that's looking ahead to the Edinburgh Festival. You can get tickets um, at uh, uh, online at the Edinburgh Fringe website. And now we're going to look back, to, say, a few weeks ago at the Politics Festival. The wonderful Times columnist, Rachel Sylvester, wrote a piece. She, she's, she's got this knack of writing pieces which are really well sourced, but also often provocative. It's quite unusual. Those that are well sourced are uh, columns can be bland because you don't want to alienate any of the sources. But Rachel has got this knack of uh, having the most brilliant sources for her columns. I remember she and I uh, did a kind of double act for the BBC during one of the most recent general elections. I can't remember. It was probably 2015. And um, she always used to say to me, you know, that the pressure of all the phone calls you get as a columnist the day before you write a column from cabinet ministers and others, you know, trying to sort of suggest ideas for columns. And I thought, I sort of nodded, but then I thought, well, you know, I, I have to phone them up. They don't phone me up very often. Um, so she's incredibly well sourced her columns but at the same time as I say they she 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 develops an argument and she developed an argument for a new political party recently uh, and suggested that it could be led by David Miliband now that got quite a few derisory responses but the argument for the party got a lot of positive responses on Twitter and elsewhere but I read that column and was worried by it on many levels as I discuss in the discussion that you're about to hear. Uh, Rachel puts the case and we're also joined by Jonathan Friedland who uh, is uh, as many of you will know one of the most uh, thoughtful and perceptive writers and he was brilliant in this discussion because there's a huge pressure on columnists to come to any discussion at any public event with a strong argument and just say right this is what I think boom 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 be provocative and those are always the columns by the way that the, are the easiest to write you know I was always struck by people saying well what a brave column from so and so they've said that uh, Theresa May is clearly insane actually that column you can knock off in about 20 minutes it's not brave because it kind of is just one step ahead of all the fashionable orthodoxy about any prime minister at any moment but they're the ones that are oh, fantastic what what courage oh that's a must read but anyway Jonathan came to this discussion uh, with an open mind as he said at the beginning about the merits or not of a new political party and Ian Birrell, uh, who uh, organised the Politics Festival with me, chaired this event, but chaired it uh, expressing his views, which incidentally I think is a good way sometimes to chair meetings to actually get involved in the discussion. So it becomes much more conversational. And um, Ian too has some very interesting views uh, as he navigated 
the way through the audience joins in as well so it's this the joy of the live event i just think the live event is such an important part of the repertoire with the decline of newspapers and so on obviously you have the social media and Twitter and all that, which I think is fantastic and liberating and not stifling. Uh, but the live event, which is a kind of old-fashioned idea, you know, Dickens going around the theatres reading his books and so on, is, is coming back as well. Uh, and I think is a really important part of a journalist's repertoire. Anyway, this is uh, our discussion from the Politics Festival, chaired by Ian and with me, Johnny Friedland, and Rachel Sylvester on the panel, and I hope you find it interesting. So thank you very much for joining us again on a Saturday uh, when uh, I'm sure everyone's heard the football Sunday. score. Sunday. Sunday even. It's been a long weekend. And I'm sure you've heard the football score of bright sunny days, so it's, but it's very good to see you all here. Um, we're going to ask the question, should there be a centre party, which is something that's come up quite a bit in this politics festival. Uh, I should declare that I'm not, uh, this isn't the BBC, I'm a very biased uh, chair. Uh, I take the view personally that the Tories have moved to the right, Labour to the left, and there's a large hole in the middle. Uh, which This is what we're going to interrogate and explore. And partly it's inspired by a column that Rachel wrote earlier this year, in which she put forward very cogently the idea that there is this hole in the middle, and um, uh, suggested that possibly one of the saviour could even be David Miliband to which I then tweeted a response saying that I thought it was a great article. It said I wasn't convinced by the Miliband argument. And out of that, we said, well, let's get together and discuss it. So I'm delighted to have Rachel, who I'm sure everyone knows is an absolutely brilliant columnist in The Times, who really shows off that she does all the, the legwork and is so informed uh, of what's happening in the very persuasive uh, pieces, which are a must-read. Jonathan is also one of the most thoughtful columnists around, in my view, with his Saturday column in The Guardian and always interesting, straying not just to Westminster, but to, to global affairs. And Steve is my co-conspirator on this yeah. festival, so it's his fault as much as mine that we're all sitting here together. And uh, as I'm sure everyone knows, he's a very erudite uh, political commentator and broadcaster. So um, hopefully it'll be an interesting discussion. And let's start with you, because it's your fault. So <laughs> should there be a centre party? Yes, definitely. Uh, I think the more interesting question is whether there could and how practical it is. Um, but the, in terms of the principle, I just feel that the Tories have moved to the left, uh, right, Labour's moved to the left, and as you say, there's this just enormous gap. gap. Um, there's a market failure in politics at the moment, if you like, that there's the consumers want something which the market isn't providing to them. A lot of surveys show, there was one National Centre for Social Research showed that 56% of the public don't think any of the political parties represent them. Uh, and even Labour MPs say that they would feel immoral campaigning for Jeremy Corbyn to come, become Prime Minister because they feel he's a threat to national security. Tory MPs say they're voting for a policy in Brexit that they don't believe is in the national interest. So you've got this kind of hard Brexit versus hard left. And I think the majority of people are kind of in the middle and there's nobody to represent them. The more interesting thing is whether it's practical and the argument against that is that you know, the SDP failed, uh, we've been there, done that, Andrew Adonis makes that argument very persuasively. My view in, is that actually politics is so in flux at the moment, it's as if the Rubik's Cube, if you like, has been scrambled. Uh, all the old party tribal allegiances based on 
class, you know, um, geography have been scrambled and muddled up. Um, and that there's now this divide which is much more generational between a kind of, it's defined as sort of open versus closed politics. Um, you know, it's different views on liberal on um, things like gay marriage, immigration, the environment versus a sort of much more closed, backward-looking approach. And both the main parties are on the closed side of that debate. And I just think there's this big hole for an open, liberal, uh, not sort of pure free market, but kind of liberal on economics and socially liberal party, which uh, would, would get a lot of support. It does, though, I think, need uh, a leader who can articulate and represent that vision in the way that Macron has done in France. Um, I, I interviewed David Miliband actually last week and asked him, and he said he doesn't want, you know, he's not going to do it. He, um, I think he still feels he'd be, he's Labour, he's defined as Labour, he will always be Labour. Couldn't take the pay cut, too. <laughs> That's true. But, <laughs> but if it's not him, I just feel there's, there's, there's an opportunity for someone. Uh, that's is, it, my... is it really Brexit that's sh shaken that Rubik's Cube, do you think, or does it go back beyond? I think Brexit, it's almost like the flash of lightning that's illuminated this changed landscape. And Brexit, I, I think people now define themselves, it's interesting, as either leave or remain rather than left or right, Labour or Tory. Uh, but that's really a sort of um, totem for this open-closed divide. It's not really just about Brexit. And I think that the, in this whole new party discussion, um, any new party couldn't just be about Brexit. I think it would have to be a much wider uh, sort of open liberal uh, pitch, not just about Europe. Because, uh, you know, one way or another, Brexit's going to be resolved, maybe, one day. <laughs> um, so let's get to the, to, the, um, to the could and the hows and the whos mm -hmm. later on. Should there be a centre party? What do you think? Well, I said to you just a moment ago that um, this is one of those rare cases where a columnist comes to an event like this with an open mind, which I know is a slight professional failure on my part. It breaks um, the columnist code. It breaks the columnist code. Normally, we're meant to be 100% certain about everything. This is one of these issues that I, I you know, really was grateful for your invitation because I thought I do want to think it through. Uh, but it doesn't mean I don't have lots of thoughts on it. I do. The trouble is I'm torn on the conclusion. So I, the premise of the proposition that uh, Rachel has made, I'm completely with. I think this idea of market failure is, is absolutely right. Uh, there is a failure there, um, and I think it's really specific at the moment, which is about Brexit. So there's the 48% do not and did not have a party, you know, people I know will say the Lib Dems are there, but for, you know, in, in 2017, I don't think they had a party that spoke for them. You had two parties whose manifestos were committed to, two main parties committed to, um, Brexit. So I think that is a really specific uh, market failure. The, 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 where the problems for me begin with, first of all, the notion of a centre party. What does the centre party believe in? Because the bit of market failure I feel is, as a you know, lifelong Labour voter, is specifically for a party of the left and centre-left. That's where I think the gap is, actually, because you do have a party that, that in Labour at the moment that is led by the what was always the far left and the hard left. And therefore, the notion of a party that says a programme of ending austerity, economic justice, redistribution, but without the baggage that the hard left carry, um, the baggage of uh, a foreign policy that is, you know, at a gut instinct is more sympathetic to Putin than Obama, 
you know, I think there should be space for that. That shouldn't be an eccentric cause, a party that doesn't carry around this, ex, you know, odd and often sinister baggage on racism and anti-Semitism, etc. So, to me, it's not a centre party that needs reinventing or creating. It's a party of the left that doesn't carry this kind of old 1970s far left, hard left baggage. Uh, that's the job. But uh, so the, it might the, almost be called New Labour. Well, you know, in a way, that's the that's the that's the proposition that was the the bit of territory rather that was vacated. Uh, Ed Miliband said that New Labour was dead, and I think he pronounced that death certificate prematurely because uh, there was still space for it. So I think it's, in other words, it predates Corbyn. But the, the point about precedence, I think, are, is really interesting, and this is why I get torn, because it, the, the Andrew Adonis argument about the, which I think you just mentioned, the SDP, has normally been such a block on this argument, and it's just said, we tried it, it failed, it only ends up uh, dividing the anti-Tory vote. And, uh, Tories staying forever. That has been so compelling for 35 years that no one's ever gone near it. And yet, we all know, all, everybody are here, and I'm sure everybody here has known that the rule book of politics that we all spent our professional lives studying has been torn up by the last two and a half years. Nothing in the rule book works anymore. It, you know, it used to be said that if a presidential candidate was found with a tape in which he bragged about abusing and sexually harassing women, he wouldn't get elected, and he did. So the old rule book is no longer valid, and therefore Rachel's point about the Rubik cubing scramble, I, I really take that. The other reason why I think the precedence might not be terminal for this idea is this. If you're asking, should a centre party be created with a view to the centre party being the government, then absolutely the SDP example tells you it can't happen. But if you're thinking centre party created with a view to creating, to having 10 to 15 to 25, maybe top end 40 seats in parliament, well, that becomes a really viable proposition. And you could then think, A, it could happen, and B, it might be worth happening because a small group like that, we've seen with the DUP how much influence they could have, a group like that could actually say to either one of these other two, but I would say uh, a Corbyn-led Labour Party, uh, you're not going to be in government unless you have our support and here are our demands. And it drags it back to the sort of territory I was talking about before. So I think if you're talking about an en marche Macron thing and David Miliband comes back and rides to great victory, I can't see how that happens. A different proposition of a new creation which gets 10, 15 and plays a disruptor role, I think that is possible. So Steve, the same question to you. Yeah, I mean, my problems are with the terms being used here and in Rachel's uh, stimulating column about whether there should be a centre party. For example, this term, as Jonathan implies, the centre ground, is used a lot with a kind of arrogant assumption that all those who use it are on it without clearly defining it. Let me give you a couple of examples. Radio 4 did a documentary about what's happened to the centre uh, in British politics, and one of the main contributors was George Osborne. Now, I think Rachel would probably believe that he is part of the centre ground. George Osborne claims to be. I think anyone objectively looking at his record as a chancellor would put him on the right. He, uh, you, you can agree or disagree with him, um, but he is a figure of the right. Europe, in this sense, is a bit of a red herring, I think, because he's pro-European and social liberalism, uh, which he's always believed in. People say, oh, he's on the centre ground. Now, if a party is being formed around his view of economics and the role of the state, it will be a party of the right. It won't be the, the, the gap that uh, Jonathan has identified. And those who talk about social and economic liberalism, 
need to be much clearer what they mean. I mean, most people agree about the social liberal reforms, but it's always conflated, social and economic liberalism, as if they're the same thing. Margaret Thatcher was an economic liberal. So are we talking about a centre party that embraces a form of economic liberalism where the state is seen as a problem and not part of the solution? Because I think the big challenge for a new party, if it were to be formed, is to recognise the challenge of a global economy is how does the state mediate uh, between that global economy, which has meant people are out of, you know, the loss of control, we need to gain back control. They can't do it as individuals. They need mediating forces. So the case has to be put for the state. But everyone I hear who espouses a centre party don't really believe in the state. They want a smaller state. They, um, they are economically liberal in a kind of, in the way that Margaret Thatcher was. And I just don't think that addresses any of the problems that arise. And in terms of leadership, I know, Rachel, on Twitter, you got a lot of uh, uh, stick about you suggesting David Miliband. But I, I don't blame you for that bit of it. I mean, there isn't an obvious leader. And that is because the force being defined is so vague. I promise you, if there was in place a movement that was clear, uh, there would be leaders. Um, but because it is all so vague, these terms banded around the centre, economic, liberal, um, you then en end up with no obvious leaders. And I speak to Labour MPs who are thinking about doing this, and they say oh, it would be different to the SDP. Well, I say to them, dream on. The SDP had four charismatic former cabinet ministers glittering with aura about them uh, at a point where the parties were diverging at least as much as they are now. And it lasted for about six years. So I, have, I can see why people are kind of navigating in the fog of politics at the moment. But I think until there is much more clarity about the purpose, it's going nowhere and deserves to go nowhere. And what if we were to leave aside the George Osborne idea and just have more the idea of a reborn new labourery type thing? Well, it depends what you mean. See, this is again, the t what does it mean by a reborn new labour? So, oh yeah, great, that means the landslide uh, victory coming up. New labour was a, we all followed it so closely, was a product of uh, 1997, a product of four election defeats in circumstances which do not apply now. The circumstances and challenges now are almost the opposite of then. Then Labour had to prove that they would be very careful with public spending. Uh, Blair and Brown never made a speech about the role of the state. They didn't dare in case it looked as if they were going back to the 1970s. I can understand why that was the case. But the challenge now, as I say, is how you mediate the global economy the degree to which any individual government can, and how, and in what form. Now, I don't know the answers, but I know they, they are the questions. And you then come on to a completely different debate about can the state in a modern global economy play, be a constructive, benevolent force? I'm sure it can, but that's the framing of an argument, not new labor, social and economic liberalism, Osborne uh, kind of Peter Mandelson uh, pro-European, that, that doesn't get anywhere near to addressing the needs for a new party. So Steve's sort of saying, I think, if I can paraphrase, to some extent there isn't 
the market failure that you're thinking is sitting there in the middle of the British I think British he's defining politics. what I'm saying uh, when actually I'm not what I'm is not what I'm saying. So right. I'm not sure necessarily George Osborne would be part of this. Um, it would be up to him. But uh, I definitely think this new party has to have a, a role for the state. It isn't about cuts. Actually, George Osborne went very far with austerity, and, and I think this party would have to make uh, an argument for austerity having gone too far, for public spending, but in a different way. So, you know, dealing with things like social care, dealing... I've been um, working on a piece about gangs and, you know, youth crime, dealing with the sort of crisis in a lack of early intervention in some of these families, dealing with new problems in a different way. Um, so not... Ba I, I think the problem with your argument, Steve, is you're, you're defining politics in this left-right way, when actually I think that you're not taking into account the scrambling that's happened. Um, so it isn't back to Peter Mandelson and Tony Blair, actually, but who is the person now who can reinvent the centre-left, centre-right in a way that... So you look at Ruth Davidson, for example, if you're going to take a Conservative. She talks a lot about um, the role of the state, role of the state in house-building, for example. Um, a compassionate conservatism that's also about a responsible capitalism. Um, so if you're going to have people who would start from the Conservative Party now in the new party, they wouldn't really be necessarily sort of Osborneite, hard economic liberals in that way. Yeah, but can um, I just come back on that before? Uh, just on this, you see, there is this view, and I know Rachel takes it, that the, the real debate now is open versus closed. And obviously in terms of Europe, it is, largely. But on other issues, I do think, I'm afraid, left and right still apply. You see, it's interesting. Uh, you say the Conservative Party is now uh, moving rightwards. Well, actually, Theresa May, in her early Nick Timothy phase, when the advisor, who was basically telling her what to say and think, I think, um, was to some extent moving leftwards on issues like intervening in markets. And you could argue this public spending pledge on the NHS, although it hasn't been worked work through at all, is, is somebody who is trying to frame an argument around the state. That she's, but she can't frame it because she's lost the power of speech almost. Um, <laughs> but, but so even the assumption that they are moving well to the right under her compared with Cameron Osborne, I just think, it is wrong, and, and we still need to use right and left as part of the guide. Tony Blair years ago said, look, there's a new device, open, open versus closed, not right, so, as if he had hit upon, as he often did rather cleverly, a new insight. You know, this open versus closed split the Tories over the Corn Laws, you know, tariff reform, it's always been around. But I think there is a right and left divide still, and you would take a different view on issues like the degree to which the state should play a part, if you're on the right and left. And I'm afraid that would include, in the end, Ruth Davidson. She's, she's all our pin-ups because she's so engaging and exciting, and she's done well in Scotland, but she has been wholly untested in policy implementation. I mean, she, you, this idea, I think, that she could go from Scotland to becoming Prime Minister is just not on. 
So, Jonathan, do you want to pick up? And also, yes. what, I wonder also if it's not just about left or right, but there's a sort of frustration with the nature of politics, which we've seen since the expenses scandal. And there is actually a desire for a different approach to politics, which we hear from so many politicians, yes, we want to do it differently. But actually, I think the public do want a slightly different approach, where they want more evidence-based stuff, possibly more technocratic, maybe just more bringing people together again to solve the big questions of our age. Yes, and whether a that's actually very helpful. Whether uh, a disruptive force, like you're suggesting, could help do this. Yes, and it, it, that's helpful because it, it, it absolutely reinforces the point I was also going to make. So I'm just going to go back in my mind to the SDP, and uh, since that's the last experience we all have of the creation of Centre Party, there were two things driving it. One of them was the thing you're talking about, which was the sense that it had novelty, that it was somehow... Uh, new people coming into politics who were uh, technocratic people who were untainted by the punch and judy partisanship, uh, that that was somehow, there was a sort of clean skin appeal to it. Do you remember the people, the phrase political virgins, all these new people came in, and the people who wrote, who in that f founding group, a whole lot of them were academics and technocrats. That gave it, and so a couple of minor celebrities, it gave it an appeal that this was um, almost separate from ideology, just the notion that we're going to break out the usual Westminster way of doing things and do things in a new way. There is always appetite for that, and there would be again. Uh, and it's a very interesting game to play about who are the non-party political figures who could release that energy again now. You know, if you, want, if you were... The first step of the, so the SDP was the Council for Social Democracy. Do you remember that was 100 yeah. names? And it was, you know, Bamba Gascoigne and all these sorts of people. Now, who are the J.K. Rowling is a name you would want now. And Gary know? Lineker. And Gary Lineker. There are certain <laughs> names that you know would release a kind of interest. You know, Jamie Oliver, maybe, I don't know. Who, Brian Cox. Brian Cox. Yeah. There are people who are seen as sort of... Who's going to uh, lead the gang, new gang of four? So anyway, that well, was one part of the... Definitely going to come to that. That was one part of the driver. That was non-ideological, new people untainted. Surely we can all get along and sit around a table and do things. That You would tap into that again, I think. But the other part of it, listening to what Steve was saying, uh, I, really, I, I realise it was very much the way I was saying that I saw the gap. In other words, it was about the left of politics. They were, after all, the Social Democratic Party. Yeah. Their message was social democracy. Yeah. It's very revealing the 27 MPs or whatever it was that started, I think there was one Tory. Yeah. The rest were all Labour uh, MPs. They were, what they were saying was the Labour message broadly is right. There was an argument which we wouldn't have now about the extent of the so-called mixed economy, how much should be state, yeah. how much should be private sector. Even Corbyn and McDonnell now would not really be... Uh, they would be more or less on the SDP side of that argument, incredibly. Yeah. Uh, they weren't, you know, they, the, uh, the counterpoint was nationalising everything. But the other argument was, surely we can be a party of social democracy in this country without taking on all this bonkers stuff that we are seeing at Labour Party Conference about leaving NATO and um, then the EU and all the other eccentricities that were associated with the hard left then. Amazingly, some of the, you know, Northern Ireland being one of them, there some of the same eccentricities live on now because Corbyn and McDonald are the same people. But I think that is the proposition. In other words, the fact that you have... I don't think Osborne would be part of it, just as he wouldn't have been part of it then. I think this is a discussion, actually, about the opposition to the Tories. What should be on the other side of that aisle? And should it be a social democratic party that doesn't, as I say, feel the need to be kind of seeking... Ill, you know, Ill, showing ill will towards the West... Uh, and that has weird positions on various ethnic minorities, 
or could it just be? And that's what New Labour was doing. SDP and New Labour were basically two ends of the same process, and actually, I think. And you could, just, everyone says the SDP failed. It was an enormous success, really, in, way, in yeah. the sense that it shifted the dial of politics. And I think that, I mean, I think probably the reason I plucked the Miliband name from the air is because that was the gap, really, for me yeah. anyway, yeah. that is in the market. And just exactly um, on, sorry, go on. No, 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 no. Well, just on exactly on that, I once interviewed David Owen <laughs> for a documentary about the STP, and I asked him, when was the moment you knew it was over? And it's fascinating because it came much earlier than I thought, and he said it was when Neil Kinnock gave the famous speech in Bournemouth, I think it was, when, you know, redundancy yeah. notices yeah. in their, you know, a Labour council sending redundancy notices in taxes, mm. etc. Owen said at that moment, he thought, it may take years, but Labour is coming back. And if Labour's coming back, there is no need for the SDP. So new Labour was the same idea. Can you have a sane party of redistribution against austerity, progressive on the amount of money spent by the state, uh, etc.? but make sure you reassure people that culturally you're comfortable with Britain, you don't have a bonkers foreign policy, uh, and you're not soft on crime, etc. And we are back to that same issue. The problems that drag down Corbyn are not that people have a problem with renationalising the railways. It's because they think he's got these eccentric positions on those other places. And uh, the, the same question that led to the four forming the STP that was the same thing that led... Uh, Campbell and Blair and Philip Gould and Peter Madison to form New Labour, and we have the same question confronting us now. And the, the thing I sort of also feel, again, sort of quoting Macron, that whole need for muscular liberalism, when you've got these extremists coming up all over, you know, you've got children being separated from their parents on the Mexican border. I mean, you wrote a very good column about it, Jonathan. But that idea that if the centre, or whatever you, however you define it, if the sort of centre-left, maybe we're going to say, it doesn't have an answer then you're going to end up with a more and more extreme on the right, and somebody has to stand up to that. But you see, what, what do you think, And Steve? I don't think Corbyn is a credible rival to the populist right. Well, we know at the last but, election there were nearly 20% of Tories who didn't like May, didn't like the idea of what was happening with Brexit, but still couldn't be persuaded to vote for Corbyn. But, you see, but what do you think about the idea of a disruptive force? So it may not win power but it may just bring a new energy to the debate and change some of the debate, whatever it is. With it depends what form the disruptive force takes. You know, these terms, again, see, it's, we've got a precise example. Jonathan said, in passing, it's not about railway nationalisation. Now, um, and incidentally, David Owen, I bumped into during the last election campaign, he told me he donated a big sum of money to Corbyn's Labour Party because he approved of the manifesto. Um, so these things are mm -hmm. more complex. Um, now, Rachel, you in that article talked about uh, social and economic liberalism and public service reform. Now, I think your version of reform would be the sort of Cameron Blair Stop version. Finding my of, <laughs> no, no, you, you <laughs> tell me. I mean, you, obviously, I, that's what I sort of read into it. I'm maybe wrongly. Well, I just uh, said an example other words, which should be social care. That yeah. should be actually, that's a huge investment by the state, an intervention by the state in order to cap care costs or whatever. Yeah. That's hugely yeah. costly, but it's dealing with a new problem. Yeah, which, For example, which if, in fact, Theresa may try to address in the election. Actually. But she did it so cat She did it cat handedly. Yeah. But you know, if you read that Tory manifesto, there were bits of it that were quite sort of to use that term to the to the left in a weird way. But you see, take railway nationalization. Um, I would imagine your version of a new party would not back that. Whereas Johnson says, let's park that, that's okay. Um, and, and this is where I think the issues will I don't be feel strongly about rail national if it's if the 
trained companies are run by their sort of state-operated companies, that, that if that works. I think it's what works on the railways. It's not ideological. So that's interesting. You have teased out a difference there, because I think the, the logic would be to say that the economic sort of centre of gravity, because of everything that's happened, has shifted left. It doesn't surprise me to see what you said about David O. Uh, or it does that he gave the donation, but not that he agreed with the manifesto. Mm. Um, uh, the donation <laughs> bit surprised me. The, 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 the agreeing with the manifesto, that's what I was trying to say, was that the current McDonnell Corbyn actually would be in the same place as the STP were on the economics and on state spending, and I think people have changed because they've seen with the events and the crash of 2008, people have moved further left on that. They do want to see more, you know, more regulation, more, and they've seen privatisation is excessive and incompetent. So they've seen that. But that they correct? just want to be when, able to do that. But when we, when we look at the polling, when we look at the polling, of course, the people who are most antipathetic to that view are younger voters. Well, the polling um, shows that younger voters are actually more... Uh, sympathetic to the idea of some of these things like outsourcing and privatisation and, and capitalism and everything. Well, so some of the things right. we believe that these are the people who are voting for Corbyn and these are also the people who are very anti-Brexit. It go, I mean, this is why I wonder if some of the stuff Rachel is, is raising, this, we all know the Andy Cooper uh, theory whereby uh, you ask people what do they think of uh, things like uh, feminism, globalisation, the environment, yeah. uh, identity politics essentially. And people under 50 say they think these things are great. People over six, if people over 50 say they don't like them, and people over 65, as a rule, as a majority, really don't like them. And whether there's a divide there, well, which is about sort of attitudes, mm. and it's these sorts of attitudes which define us now much more than the state. And that's why it could be that there's room for a more disruptive force within politics. And we know everything is very febrile. We know that things can change very quickly. We know there's huge dissatisfaction with current politicians of both left and right. And I wonder whether this makes it more likely that a party which taps into this mood, which doesn't necessarily get so hung up on the traditional uh, views on the state, uh, while still trying to come up with solutions, of course, mm. to them. I don't know. Well, so my unscientific... Uns that's interesting. And the, you're absolutely right to bring us to the generational divide, because that's obviously huge. It is, in some ways, we talk about open and closed. That is the biggest one in politics. And Labour's numbers, people under 45, are very... Hi. I just can't help but think, and this is totally unproven, and Corbyn people absolutely denounce you if you say this. My thought experiment is, if there was a Labour Party that had the programme, manifesto is, you know, is more precise term, but the programme broadly the Labour has now, but that was, had a leadership and you could almost fill in any name, Yvette Cooper, Andy Burnham, any of those people, uh, who didn't have, you know, who wouldn't have taken the position Corbyn took on Salisbury, on Syria and say on anti-Semitism, just to give three sort of emblematic ones. My hunch is there would not be a mass membership party. You would not have 600,000 people. They would not be shouting, oh, Yvette Cooper at, at Glastonbury. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, and if they were clear on Brexit... Uh, and would they have to be... Main, what would they have to be on Brexit? I think they would have to be, you know, pretty well say... Like the EEA position saying, mm. we're going to leave the European Union, but nothing else, because that's all. And we're going to fight tooth and nail for single, uh, single market and customs union. But, you know... I don't let, want... I'm, let, I want okay. a party which says no Brexit. OK, but let, let's just... Even, even if we take... Don't go as far as that. We just say Labour's existing programme, but without the serious Salisbury anti-Semitism triad sort of thing, less charismatic... You know, less charismatic... My intuition is Labour will be 15 to 20 points ahead in the polls. And what, though, if the Tories, post-Brexit, whatever happens to Brexit, had a... Someone... Cameron, of course, got up to 45% in the polls in his yeah. early days, pre the financial crash. Yes. With talking about the environment and, and accepting the role of the state and such like and neutering the health service as an issue. What, of course, if the Conservatives 
you're looking at it obviously from the Labour perspective. Yeah, because I think very that's open the gap, yeah. But what if the Conservatives actually returned to sanity, as they did very briefly for three years? Yeah, well, my, the, that was what I was going to say about my, again, it's an intuition, but there will be evidence for this, I think, about the way what happens is the polls change, the polarities change, so that when Labour were in, those, in that position I've been staking out, the kind of crudely new Labour story, Conservatives come closer to them. This, this thing does happen, they mirror each other, so that, you know, as the Conservatives game more and more bonkers on Brexit, it created the space for Labour to go into this Corbynite posture. I'm just, based on what happened in the Blair years, the closer Labour get towards the centre, this corresponding thing will happen on the Tories. Well, what do you just, make of that? Well, if you think about what UKIP did to politics, and Farage, arguably Nigel Farage was the most powerful man in Britain, they, sh they yeah. shifted the dial, and a, a, you could have that sort of thing happening with Labour and a new party. So they basically shifted the Tories way to the Eurosceptic side on Europe. Uh, and a new party, this disruptive force, can change the mainstream parties. They can sort of be the little, um, little machine pushing the enormous engine, if you like. Yeah. Well, what um, about, we haven't talked that. about, there is, of course, a party out there which espouses liberalism and even puts it in its name. <laughs> what I think the, the problem with the Lib Dems is they are so tainted yeah. by the experience of the coalition. And maybe this is back to your point, Steve, actually, about this gap really is on the left, that they are so tied to that Osborne austerity programme um, and the public service reform in the way um, you're talking about, that it's very hard for them to break out of that. And if the gap is really on the centre-left and to do with being the sort of mouse pushing the line of Labour, if you like, um, then that's, that's, that it's going to be hard, and especially under Vince Cable, who feels like such an old-fashioned leader, doesn't he? But, of course, he is basically a New labour type character, politically. In, in po yeah, in politics, but brand matters too, I think. I so agree with that. I think the, they could almost say anything in their programme. It's not going to matter. Mm. They are absolutely tired with the but, coalition experience. But, and the fact that Vince Cable was a cabinet minister in that coalition emphasise it even more. So that's why I skipped over it. Of course their position was exactly the position I was talking about on Brexit. It doesn't matter. These things last a generation. They knew it, I think, when they went into coalition, that they would be marked, but they felt they had to do it. I think it was a huge mistake. But probably exactly a generation, in other words, 20 years, before anyone will even look at them again, which again creates this space. But I'm pleased we're not just talking about Europe, because I think in some ways Europe it would obviously be the trigger if there were to be one but is in some ways a diversion from all the things we have been talking about. But you just mentioned, I know you were just using them as an examples, um, if uh, Yvette Cooper and Andy Berman were here advocating a sort of Norway Brexit with, without anti-Semitism, all that kind of thing, Labour would be 20 points ahead. Well, Not, neither, Norway doesn't have but enough. I've just used this as an illustration of the problem of Europe in navigating this. I know it provides opportunities for a new party, but it's problematic. Um, Yvette Cooper and Andy Burnham are not in favour of the single market because they're both for different reasons. Well, no, for the same reasons. Against uh, free, free movement, movement yeah, of yeah. labour. So you think, oh, we've cracked it. We'll put Yvette in and she will get to, uh, a new party saying, right, we are for the Norway soft Brexit position. And she'll say, no, I'm not. I don't believe in free movement of labour. And this is why when you come down to the... The, the policy and the nitty-gritty, which is fundamental to a new party. Imagine if it falls apart on the Today programme at the launch, you know. Mm. Um, and so <laughs> while Europe is this sort of... People, a lot of people say it's Europe that will produce this realignment. In a way, that Europe was key to the SDP. They are split so many different ways, these potential 
Okay. Recruits. Well, I know well, you were only using no, them as emblematic just, examples. Just on, just on that one little narrow example, let's say then, for the sake of argument, that Yvette Cooper was the leader of a party that was committed to exactly the position Labour's got now. Right. This fudged position, yeah. Keir Starmer position. I still think, absent no. Salisbury, Syria, and anti they'd still be 15 points yeah. ahead because yeah. this government is dying on its backside. Sure. Can, can I it should nice. be so obvious. And yet, amazingly, Labour is still not ahead. Why? So, I, I, beyond that, I think there is a way to resolve that thing, which is you say single market customs union and then you come up with a Gordon, the Gordon Brown script from a couple of years yeah, ago. That was quite, that was good. That was, that was a way out for them. It said, here are six steps you can do within the single market, within free movement, that essentially deals with the migration problem. Of course, he had a credibility issue because everyone was thinking, why didn't you do it? But, okay, that's, we are where we are. Yeah. I think Labour could get out of a new formation could get out of it. But you have very, your very finger good. on the problem, though, actually, that for Labour, immigration is this roadblock, if you like, to reform. That they they are so they believe, and it's very deep in the psyche for a certain section of the party, that the seats in the north depend totally on hardline on immigration, and that the white working class will never vote for a kind of in my definition of this centrist, liberal centre-left that we're talking about. Um, so then it's, it's quite hard you know, to see how it then moves to that position. Um, but on this kind of idea of politics rotating, if you like, if politics is more about identity, I think the marginal seats maybe change. And you mentioned Andrew Cooper, who's um, done a lot of work for this th new think tank, Global future global Britain, global something, global future, I think it's called. Um, and he plotted, he did the uh, survey in every constituency based on what do you think of multiculturalism, feminism, the environment, those sort of open, closed questions, if you like. And he then plotted the constituencies on a graph. Um, and it showed as if the, the sort of dividing line rotating, if you like. So if you have left, right, once you plot these um, factors, the line goes like this. Um, and the whole marginal seats become totally different. So the party that is this open centrist party no longer perhaps depends on the anti-immigration wow. seats. Just, and just then it becomes much more compelling that, in fact, you could have a, a new Labour pro-immigration, pro-redistribution, but without the baggage of the kind of hard Labour need to win over this their perception of the kind of white working class northern seas just just you've mentioned immigration just quickly before we go over i mm. mean obviously the party i want which reflected my views i suspect we get about 0.1 percent <laughs> of the public vote uh, and that may be true of all of us we all actually want a party which reflects our own views but you've mentioned immigration where would your open closed you know, your new centre ground be on immigration? It would, would be, it be, it would be pro, it would be liberal on immigration, which is why you need to build, a new, it would have to build a new coalition and you probably would lose some of the existing Labour seats, but you would gain some more, perhaps the sort of seats that the Lib Dems won before the coalition. Uh, so it would have to, it would have to involve a scrambling. It couldn't just be kind of re totally rebuilding Labour, I think. What, what about um, you with your gang of five, with Friedland, J.K. Rowling, Gary <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, Oliver? That was a different thing. But, um, I, I think on, it's, immigration. It's, but on immigration, I, I, I think this is fascinating, what Rachel's just said, and I think it suggests that we are in this very painful transition period. There's a sort of, um, you know, this morbid period where something has not quite yet died, and nor has it yet been... The new thing has not been born. The truth is there is something um, that in a few years' time we'll think is crazy about a progressive party, Labour, led by these London right-on figures, McDonnell and Corbyn, 
still chasing UKIP votes in northern seats because they have to. And the, it, it sort of seems obvious now, you know, with detachment, that there will be a party that is for the metropolitans and liberals and towns and uh, cities, rather, and university towns. But the, uh, and unashamedly goes for that, doubles and, and down And the interesting that. thing about all the polling that you were mentioning on the generational shift is that that's, that group is going to get bigger because exactly, those people aren't going to grow into becoming more reactionary, exactly. stroke closed, stroke exactly. anti-immigration, anti-gay, anti-climate change. Uh, they're going to be... They're going to, they're going to keep those values because it's about values rather than opinion, if you exactly. like. Exactly, and this, this is the... That's what I was going to say. The long-term bet would absolutely be right, but there can be pain on the way mm. because it's absolutely true what Rachel just said. That is the emerging electorate. It's getting bigger. But you saw from what happened in 2016 in the United States where all the, the pollsters were saying Hillary Clinton can't lose because this emerging electorate is getting more diverse, etc. But if somebody is prepared to put all their chips in a massive way on the equivalent of those anti-immigration, old, industrial, etc. towns, you can just make it, you can eke out a win. And so Labour could, if they, if let's say it was Labour doing it, if they bet, followed the strategy Rachel's just outlined, they could lose the one and the one after that, but eventually that's mm -hmm. where well, my, the votes are. Certainly my view is that the Conservatives, with this pivot towards that sort of UKIP terrain in the North and the Midlands, are actually alienating the future generations, as we're seeing, and that that 47... Uh, years cut off at the last election yes. will become 50-51. I think probably they'll win the next election by appealing to this sort of um, more nationalist tendency. Mm -hmm. In doing so, they're killing themselves for the future because they're destroying the brand for the future. So you can win and Doncaster, so etc., but you will lose forever Canterbury and Kensington and exactly. Hastings. And so longer term, they're going to lose Doncaster as well because the, because the, so the demographics are changing there as well. So that's... But, but maybe this is why it needs to be the new party, because I, actually if Labour tries to, as you're saying, if it does this halfway house, it could end up being destroyed. You need this third disruptive force, so perhaps, to... Is it basically... I mean, you're, you're sort of the grumpy old man sitting there on the edge of what the... What do you mean? On the edge of it <laughs> saying, none of this, bar humbug, we don't no, want no, any I'm of it. Not, I'm, but is it basically... It's a very trendy what a chair. <laughs> um, Is it basically what we're really saying is actually it's the political system that needs to change to allow... Uh, there to be a sort of Corbynista party, a social democratic no, party, no, a moderate... Do you, no. Is that the answer? All I'm calling for is absolute precision when terms are thrown around like disruptive force... So you're like, the pedant in the corner. Uh, no, 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 because <laughs> I could tell you this. Without that clear thinking, there is no hope of this. Yeah, you know, I've, I've more than... But are you saying that the Corbyn May offer is adequate? Um, no, no, of course not. Uh, no, although so I then, think, what would you want instead? Uh, well, I think Jonathan hinted at it. I would be, I, I would want quite a lot of uh, what ha was in that Labour manifesto, framed around an argument about how the state can be a force for good. Um, I'm not interested. I haven't been for a long time in a party linked to the the, the unions. That doesn't interest me. Um, so that would imply an interest in a new party. I think the Union League would be a problem if they were to win. I don't think their attitudes towards the state will be a problem. I think it would be quite a good thing. And, uh, and it needs shaking up. This 1979 view of the state needs challenging. And Labour did it implicitly in 97 onwards. But as I said, Blair and Brown, both articulate figures in their different ways, mm. were too scared to publicly frame it. And I think that... That is what is lacking at the moment 
in, in, in British politics. And Jeremy Corbyn, for all his idolatry of, of, in crowds, actually isn't a framer of arguments, apart from other issues. He, he lists things, but he doesn't frame arguments. So there are, I, you know, there are big gaps. Um, and the, Theresa May's problems are so overwhelming, I, she's <laughs> not even going to think about these topics. Um, but no, I'm not a grumpy man in the corner. I just promise you, if there is an absolute clarity in policy terms, in values, and then delivered by big figures, we're in a fantasy world with this. So let's come on to, we've got um, 15 minutes, 55 seconds, and uh, this may be the last ever politics festival after I've just insulted my partner. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah. let's have some questions. The new say. party's fallen out already. <laughs> Call me a grumpy old man, I'm 25. <laughs> have we got mics, lights, anything? See into the gloom. Lights, cameras, action. We can't, yeah, can't see. Oh, there we go. Great, thank you. Should we try and be prefer Can we do one here as well, please? And we'll do two to begin with. Um, there's an elephant in this room. Uh, I think you may have even just wasted 45 minutes. Because while we have a, a stupid, corrupt, first-past-the-post voting system, it is impossible for a third party to get it anywhere at all in short measure. I mean, it might over 50 years, like Labour Party, right? But to get one for an election in the near future is just out of the question. So why bother to talk about it? All right, let's take a question over here. He's rivaling you for yeah. the grumpy man in the corner. <laughs> <laughs> You've got a rival for that time. Um, yeah, I guess my uh, question is based off of Jonathan. At the beginning, you talked about your vision of a hypothetical centre party not being one to kind of outright win, but to be um, to have a few um, MPs to kind of maybe drag the far right and far left a little bit to the middle. Um, but then later you all said that, or you all agreed that the Lib Dems were completely marred by the coalition, which I think partly was because for their supporters, they were dragged too far right in trying to drag the Tories to the left. So how would a hypothetical centre party um, kind of not fall victim to that in the future? Should we take one more question because we haven't got a lot of time? To first with the check shirt. Thank you. Um, as a prematurely grumpy man, um, <laughs> I, 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 I enjoyed what I've just heard. I think the gap isn't, there isn't a party that says X, Y, Z. The gap is optimism. There are three party leaders over the age of 60 telling me my country is shit and doomed, and that's not true. Um, Trudeau, Ardern, except Macron, optimism. Mm. Challenges, certainly. Problems, things we need to discuss like adults, but some optimism, and I think that's the gap, not, you know, a view on the state or anything like that. So I'd be interested, do you think if we had a charismatic leader, ignore which party who could offer optimism, hope, and string two sentences together, because none of them can do that. Would, that. would that remove the need for a new party? All right, well, I, 
I'm going to start because I'm the chair and I'm going to, uh, just on that, I do actually think you're right that a degree of optimism and a new person coming, I, that's why I don't think it can be Miliband or Osborne or any of these people because they're busted flushes, the public are fed up with them. It if there is been. someone new, well, I actually think it may be someone who's a celebrity and hopefully not a Donald Trump or uh, Alan Sugar. But um, J.K. Uh, Rowling for PM. Yeah, but it could we'll be someone new. But okay. I do think optimism, I mean, I alluded to Cameron 2005 to 2008 one of the things that I liked about him, and you know, I wrote, I was a speechwriter, was that he had this sense of optimism. And I remember and actually before the very, before yeah. the very first speech he gave party conference, I looked through the speech and said, "My God, we haven't got any optimism in." And him and Steve Hilton then wrote in that thing about let sunshine rule the day, win the day. And I sat there thinking, "My God, that's gone over the top, isn't it?" <laughs> and actually, it wasn't. It was great because you know we should be positive. But but I think but, it's part of the legacy of the Brexit debate and the divisions and the economy and the static wages for for ten years that it's very hard for a leader to do that. And also, we live in quite aggressive times. But I do agree, a sense of optimism would be nice and It was and also utterly meaningless. I don't want to be the grumpy old man again. <laughs> again. But it's, it, it is, I completely agree with you. You need... Le the leadership, the <laughs> art of leadership should not... Uh, it should not be, an added extra should not be the capacity to inspire and explain and uplift, as you suggest. It should be absolutely central to leadership. But it's got to be part of these other things, I'm afraid. It, you can't just in a vacuum say, let the sun shine. And meanwhile, you know... Um, it was only I, the last line in an hour-long speech. Yeah, yeah, but I remember the rest of it. And, <laughs> uh, <laughs> <and> <laughs> I've never liked Steve Richards. <laughs> so what do you think about the point about the voting system, I which is a fair point? Um, it is a fair point, but it, I think it was in the Canadian Liberals proved that you could go from... Was it fifth or sixth? And they actually won in one electoral cycle through this Trudeau optimistic uh, reforming. I think it's about modernity as much as optimism, isn't it? It's about have you got a programme for the future rather than... Uh, they're all of the past. This It's like some sort of nostalgia trip politics at the moment, isn't it? Um, and I think Cameron, in fact... I, I was told he was speaking to some elderly peers and he said, well, we're in a gerontocracy at the moment and if David Davis takes over, they'll all be 70 at the time of the next election or over. And actually, I think you have to have this sense of what's the future going to be like that's going to be better. It can't just be wishy-washy sunshine wins the day. It's got to be some practical plans on stuff that's tough for people. To some extent, that's the age thing again because it's about technology and disruptive change and being yeah. and globalisation. It's yeah. about embracing the yeah. world that's emerging And the question is if you've it. got sort of the unions controlling Labour and Tories just totally neuro neurotic, uh, sclerotic about Europe, can either of them ever recapture this sort of optimistic future... I so agree with that thing about the future. It is one of the most interesting critiques of Corbyn from the left is that he does not talk about the future in terms of technology, automation of jobs. He doesn't, he can't talk about it. And his language, even from the people from the left, feel it's about a very 70s sort of mechanical, top-down view of industry and jobs, etc. So uh, owning the future, which is what I think you were sort of getting at, it's, not, uh, it's interesting how these terms all link in, hope and optimism, but and novelty and the future, they are all connected. And yes, Steve's had a go at you for the, you know, saying that it should have been more substantial and it's got to be in the programme. That's true up to a point. I think partly it is about tone and mood. And one of the things about a new formation, and Macron absolutely taps into this, is just the sense of possibility. 
when there's something new and not seen. And that's why, you know, Vince Cable is obviously not going to get uh, people um, rallying behind it because he reminds us of something before, as well as just being old. So that's why any new formation um, would be inherently exciting because it would be new. Um, your, your point about um, the pull of people to the writing, the, the Lib Dems and Coalition. So what I meant there was um, that if this new grouping was identifying as of the centre-left, it could only be in coalition with the Labour Party and perhaps the SNP, etc. It wouldn't do what the equipment... Remember, when the Lib Dems were contesting that 2010 election, they were fighting Labour from the left. They had been the party that opposed the Iraq war, that actually in many areas wanted more public spending. That you know, dizzying whiplash for the electorate where they suddenly then become a partner of the right, that's what taints your brand. So I don't think it would have that effect. Um, as long as this new formation I'm talking about only partnered with one side because they would be identified as a centre-left party. On the point about a pull, what I meant there was a kind of lunar magnetic pull. Not that you literally be t partner up with the Tories, but just by having a moderate, plausible Labour or centre-left or s small s, small d, social democratic government, there's a lunar magnetic pull for the party of the right to come closer to the centre. I wasn't suggesting you become coalition partners with them because, of course, for the reasons you said, that would finish you off. There isn't, do you remember there were Lib Dems endlessly went through this whole debate about whether they should be equidistant yeah. from Labour and the Tories? And actually, this is really the nub of what we're talking about, isn't it? Does this new party have to be of the left or should it really be equidistant? And I think what you, you were characterising what I was saying, Steve, as somehow it should be of the right. And maybe what I'm thinking is it should be genuinely equidistant so that, you, so, that, so that if you're too much of the left, you'll get swallowed up. If you're too much of the right, you'll get swallowed up. So if it's, if it's equidistant, that's where the USP... But what's the problem for the Lib Dems that some of them were to the left, some were to the right, yeah, and in some constituency fought on the left, some on the right? Exactly. And actually, when they finally came under the spotlight and ended up veering to the orange book tendency to the right, mm. they fell apart because mm. they weren't what people thought they but were. But this is why this scrambling point is so important because you're redefining, it's not left or right, it's you're redefining the, the terms, if you yes. like. But so I think I was not advocating equidistant. Let's have some mm. more questions. Quick on the draw there. As a grumpy young man, I just wanted to ask, do we even deserve a new centre party? Probably the two most successful politicians in today, what they've achieved are Jeremy Corbyn and Nigel Farage. And they spent 20 to 30 years in the political wilderness. And they both got divorced. They suffered a lot of personal, you know, struggle, isolation, etc. And you may not like them, you may not agree with them, but they have stayed and fought their corner for all those years. And then you compare that to the behaviour of the centrists, who, for perfectly legitimate reasons, nonetheless, people like David Miliband, um, Tristram Hunt, George Osborne, all left Parliament and should we even have a new centre party when they're not willing to stay and fight for the cause for years, decades? That's not what they, you know, they have to be, they're able to go off and do that. But frankly, you contrast that behaviour with the extremes, the more passionate advocates, mm. and it sort of comes up short. <laughs> I think question. Good question. Can, can we have oh, sorry, yeah, of course, yeah, one yeah, more yeah. there? Slightly oblique question, this, but I wonder what you thought of the importance of by-elections in all this. In the 80s and 90s, you used to have loads of by-elections, particularly John Major's government lost a whole series of by-elections on huge swings, which made it much more easier for a new party, if you like, to put their name forward. These days, because L MPs are younger or healthier or whatever, we don't seem to have many by-elections. <laughs> and I wondered if you thought that a by-election in the right place in the next year or so might allow a new party or a charismatic person to put their name forward and actually make a huge difference by 
taking 30 or 40 percent of the or vote. even the mayoral elections of course which we now have or things like that any more questions do one more Sorry, was the one here? Forgive me. Hi. Um, I was just wondering, you've obviously talked about the Liberal Democrats and how they've been tainted, but there have been gains, small ones, in the last two years. And with a bit of optimism from the media, it's possible that in a couple more cycles, they could have regained that territory. Do you think there's anything inherently wrong with their centrist vision? Because essentially, if there was another centre party, they would be fighting the same ground. Okay, let's do one more just because this is going to be our last one. We'll try and squeeze four in. I was just going to ask, like the whole premise is that there is a centre ground in politics where no one's really occupying. But with the last general election, the vote of the two main parties was the highest in sort of decades and decades. And does that show that maybe people are prepared, if they're on the left, to put up with a harder left government or on the right to put up with a harder right government rather than go for a centrist one? Because the Liberal Democrats, everyone was saying they were going to make loads of gains and that didn't really happen, so is there even space for a new centre party? Okay, brilliant questions, thank you. Uh, let's start with Steve, do you want to come in first? The question about um, the, the fact that the, the do we didn't deserve one with the likes of Farage and Corbyn showing that I, actually? I think it's a very interesting observation. And it, the, one of the interesting questions in British politics is why so many leave after a certain point. Um, if you look at a lot of the so-called, these are again terms I don't like using, but the so-called Blairites, the moment government ended, they were off. Um, whereas, I, like you, I, you, we, you might disagree with Farage, but he stayed and fought and he got this referendum and he's changed British politics forever. And similarly with Corbyn. And I think it raises again the question that if there is this absolutely clear political project emerging, why aren't there leaders in place to take it on? Um, and, and I think it is connected that it's, it's so fuzzy uh, that we have to turn to people like sort of David Miliband as suggested leaders. Um, and I think you are right to praise, whether we agree or disagree with them, these people who are utterly committed and have a sense of purpose in politics and who stay the course compared with lots of these self-proclaimed centrists who um, disappear after about 10 minutes. So is there a centre ground? Uh, I thought your point is fascinating about the, in a way that disproves our premise, because we've been saying market failure, and you're saying actually the market provided the, the customers, the voters, went for these two main parties. And I think it's a very good corrective to what we're saying. Um, you know, anecdotally, in terms of people who speak to and in polling, there are all these people who feel dissatisfied with the choice, and yet you're right, when, they, when it came to it in 2017, they did vote for those two main parties, so that's a good sort of corrective, although your point about PR, of course. I mean, mm. your, your point about PR, instead of just didn't have a chance to say it about first past post, of course, that, I, that was baked in, I thought, into our remarks about the STP ex experiment. Under our system, it didn't work, and that's why so many people don't look at it. But I was quite keen to pick up the point about by-elections. Yeah, yeah. Um, simply for this reason, which is absolutely they are an incredibly powerful tool. If you think about why did we have the Brexit referendum, the two events, really one event, which put the wind up um, David Cameron so badly, as I recall, were two MPs defecting from yeah. the Conservatives, yeah. uh, and uh, Carswell and the guy in Rochester and Ken no Kent, whose name I can't yeah, remember. I can't. Uh, Mark Reckless. Mark Reckless. How can we forget that? The name? fact <laughs> that the UKIP polled well in those by-elections told Cameron, I cannot go into the next general election without a referendum promise. 
and he changed the world through those by-elections. So I think they are massive, and they were also obviously <laughs> crucial for the SDP. So I think in terms of this disruptor role, you could imagine a new formation coming that never even holds a seat and changing the whole map. Because if there was a candidate of the sort of Labour that I've been describing, who, and the perfect opportunity has just gone actually, would have been Lewisham, uh, where if they, somebody had run in that seat and given Labour the fright of its life and come very close to winning, you would have all kinds of uh, reactions to that and ramifications of that. Uh, very good point about they don't come about because of death and illness so much, but they do come about because of people leaving, also, uh, exactly as the way yeah. Steve said. And so the there is an opportunity. And the interesting thing is, what if the Corbynistas go for this idea of mandatory reselection? That, I think, could be a real tipping point for this, that they're threatening to deselect moderate MPs. I mean, it's already starting the threats, at least in some constituencies. John Lansman's absolutely explicit that that's, his, that's the policy he wants, mandatory reselection of all MPs. And that would lead to moderates being deselect, mass deselections of the moderates. So you then could have a situation where a series of by-elections with moderates standing against the, the old Labour. All of our abstract discussions <laughs> would then be as nothing compared to people fighting for their jobs. Because MPs worry that their career is th under threat. If they've been deselected, suddenly they'll all be for a new mm. centre party that they can stand for. And all these comes, you know, abstract co considerations we've had would be put aside. And very quickly, do you want to pick up on the lady's point about have we been too hard on the Lib Dems and given them a bit of time and they can come back? Yeah, it is possible. I just think the time is, it could take longer than the country has. And sort of ties in with the, the point about the MPs, Blairite centrists leaving. Um, actually, there's quite a clear and present danger now for the and it's about what the voters want not about what these you know centrist big figures or big fish want and if the lib dems are going to take two electoral cycles three electoral cycles four electoral cycles a generation to get their act together i think there is there's a need for something now so because we've got a completely random sample of the electorate <laughs> of people who happen to be sitting in a hall on a sunday afternoon talking about a center party let's have a quick vote should there be a new centre party? Put your hand in the air if you would like to see and think there is a hole in the middle there. I think we've just about got a majority in the next parliament. Thank you very much for joining <laughs> us. Can you mention the next Caroline Lucas? Oh, yeah. And just to say, we've got uh, Caroline Lucas coming up next, who uh, uh, people were saying, Andrew Donis was saying, was far and away the best speaker at the Brexit march yesterday, so that should be something of a treat. No, you're disagreeing. Someone's disagreeing, but anyway... Uh, Anna Subri was, controversial view, but there, to the man there. And uh, then afterwards, we've got Ed Miliband and uh, uh, doing Reasons to be Cheerful, which wasn't Cameron speak. And Michael, and Michael Crick talking about who's great. And if you haven't seen Crick, do go and see him, because he'll be great fun. Thank you very much for joining us. So there we are. That was uh, our discussion on a new political party, uh, live from King's Place. Obviously, it wasn't live when you heard it. It was recorded a couple of weeks ago. Uh, but I hope you found that interesting. I must mention again, sorry, but I've got to. Uh, I'm live with the one-man rock and roll politics show uh, behind the scenes of all these seismic dramas uh, at the Edinburgh Festival, and you can get tickets at the Edinburgh Fringe website. Hope to see some of you in Edinburgh. Uh, in the meantime, I'll be back with the podcast next week. Thanks so much for listening.